as you and I were talking about earlier, right? Anybody can be at risk for suicide. We want to be sure to share that. Given a certain set of circumstances and factors, anybody can be at risk. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was Dr. Rosie Bowder, who's a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at OSU's College of Medicine. Among many other things, Rosie's an expert on suicide and suicide prevention, which is the topic of our conversation today. This is the second episode we're putting out in collaboration with the Ohio Journal of Public Health, an open access academic journal published by the Ohio Public Health Association, and for which I happen to be an editorial board member. When we talked about doing this series with the journal, our goals were pretty simple. We wanted just to spotlight some of the research Ohio public health scholars are publishing about important issues in Ohio, kind of similar to what we do on the show. If you check out our show notes at prognosisohio.com, you can read the article we discuss, but you can also click through to some important resources that Dr. Bowder has provided us with. In general, I want to say that I hope you'll check out the OJPH and make a habit of checking out what it's got to offer. If you're a scholar, practitioner, public health professional, or an advocate or an activist, consider submitting your work to the OJPH. Before we turn to the conversation, just a reminder to follow us on your social media channels or subscribe to the show on your podcast app. You can also follow us on YouTube or SoundCloud. And I have to say, it would be really helpful if you just do all of these things. In this world of algorithms and networks, every click and every star you give us helps us to let people know about the show. That's an effective and, I add, free way you can really help us out. Just a final note, obviously in this conversation, we're going to be discussing suicide and suicidality. If you or a loved one needs help, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 614-221-5445. We're also going to be linking in our show notes to some helpful resources provided by the Adam H. Board of Franklin County, and I encourage you to check those out. Again, those are at prognosisohio.com. Okay, now to my conversation with Dr. Rosie Bowder. Dr. Rosie Batter, thanks so much for being on Prognosis Ohio. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. So it's nice to have you on the show, but I also have to thank you not only for joining me in my dining room, but for bringing coffee. And I just want to tell you, excellent podcast guest acumen. Yes. No, I've learned that from listening to other podcasts, but also being a guest, that usually carrying coffee or sweets in hand makes you get a return invitation. Never fails. This episode is part of a series we're doing in collaboration with the Ohio Journal of Public Health. We're really excited about it, and we're going to be discussing your paper in the OJPH entitled Examining Suicidal Thoughts and Behaviors Among Ohio Youth with Oppressed Identities using the 2019 Ohio Youth Risk Behavior Survey, uh, which you wrote with Austin Starkey at OSU's College of Medicine. But we're also going to be kind of talking around the issue a little bit. On this show, we like to bring the big topics and uh, try to stay away from uh, hitting listeners with too many data points. And there are a lot of data points in here, but this is also just a really important issue that we on this show want to take as much time as we can to really get into. So thanks again for being here. Absolutely. So, So in the paper, you write the results of our analyses predominantly supported our first hypothesis for this study, Namely, that identifying as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, holding an oppressed or minoritized racial or ethnic identity, would present with increased odds of reporting suicidal thoughts or behaviors. And that includes things like feeling sad or hopeless, considering suicide, making a suicide plan, and attempting suicide. Um, so it sounds like there a large part of what you did here was to confirm some hunches you had and drawing on existing literature, no doubt. But what did you learn from the study? 
Sure. So an important aspect of research that's per- perhaps underrated is doing research to, to confirm what has maybe been extrapolated at the, the national level or among different groups. So as you said, we our, our hypotheses were confirmed. These youth with oppressed identities were more likely to endorse or report some of these outcomes, these suicide-related outcomes in terms of feeling sad, hopeless, making a plan, considering suicide and attempting suicide. Yeah, I mean, being, you know, one of the features of this study is its emphasis on intersectionality. And when we talk about intersectionality, for listeners who may not know, we're talking about the kind of cross-cutting identities and lived experiences, um, you know, things like race, gender, and sexuality um, typically come up, and and that's an important focus here. Also, there is the question of what does it mean to live in Ohio? In what way is that unique? In what way does being an Ohioan uh, position you differently? I'm also interested, you know, and I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the the novelty or the importance of this intersectional approach, but also I'm wondering about how you layer on top of intersectionality just to make things even more complicated, uh, you know, economic ups and downs, traumatic events, depression from national and even kind of global shifts like we've just been through. I mean, you're looking at a lot of context here and, yes. and it seems like that's one of the takeaways of the, of the work. Yes, I... I, I think two points I want to be sure to to touch on in response to that. The first is we don't live in a vacuum. I'm not. Uh, I don't intend with this research, and one of the things I, I hope to kind of incorporate in any kind of quanti- quantitative analysis or, or or any kind of research approach or clinical approach for that matter, is this notion of re- reflexivity. I have my own stuff I'm bringing into it. You have your own stuff. We don't exist in a vacuum. And there is this interplay with the, the systems, the culture, the social norms that surround us as we try to live our lives. This is especially important when we think about Ohio youth especially from an intersectional perspective. It's it's not that you hold one oppressed identity or one privileged identity. In fact, it can be you hold several privileged and oppressed identities. They're not additive. They're not cumulative. It is a unique experience that influences how you interact with the world, but also how the world interacts with you. So you're not only a researcher, you're also a clinician, and you're working in a clinical role at Ohio State. In what way, you know, when you first encounter a new patient you're working with, uh, you you know, how does intersectionality get processed in that moment? I mean, are you doing intersectional thinking immediately? You're trying to figure out what is my my, understanding of these different cross-cutting identity structures? Tell me that I need to be on the lookout for some questions I might need to ask. I mean, how does this kind of research translate to clinical work? We can think about that translation for clinical work as operating from a certain epistemology or theoretical perspective. When a lot of clinicians, when we go through clinical training, either at the master's or doctoral level, we take a theories class and we learn about how there are these theoretical perspectives that influence how we conceptualize a patient's concerns or their perhaps symptoms of a mental health diagnosis. Um, I would say maybe it's not so much intentionally intersectional, but coming from a feminist lens, it's something I share with my my patients that I use predominantly. So here here's my, my spiel. I use predominantly cognitive behavioral techniques from a feminist lens. 
another way of saying that and describing it to patients is I think about the context and the constructs within our culture that influence the way that you you interact with the world and the level of power it gives you or it extends upon you. It occurs to me, you know, as we're starting to think about just, you know, the broader context and how we start thinking about using research like this to be more contextual, to be more intersectional, which, you know, it's my sense that we're getting slightly better at this. I, I see people who, you know, would have heard the word intersectionality, you know, 10 years ago, uh, now kind of realizing that from a public health perspective, you need to know what people's lived experiences are and you can't treat people with this kind of cookie cutter approach. And so I think like that's become more mainstream over at least the last 10 years that I've been watching it. Um I do want to ask you a little bit about one thing that didn't come up in the in the research, but I'm sure you have ideas about. Namely, you know, you talk about the specifics of suicide and suicide plans and and sort of how we um, understand those. But you don't talk in this research about how people are planning to do it and how that factors in. I'm thinking in particular about just the prevalence of the public health crisis of guns and gun violence and suicide and guns. What do we know about methods of suicide and how that kind of layers over some of what you've learned about people's thinking and their uh, attempts and all of that? I think it's important to talk about firearms in the context of suicide prevention because of of their lethality, right? Nine times out of 10, if somebody attempts suicide with a firearm, it, it proves to be lethal compared to other means. When we think about suicide methods among youth versus adults. Adults were finding that firearms are much more prevalent, but it's growing. It's growing in in terms of representation among youth who are dying by suicide involving firearms and including female youth. When we think about suicide and guns, we think sometimes it conjures up this this archetype or this image of a middle-aged white man who is perhaps coming from a conservative background. And that's just not the case. Um, Some of my current research actually is looking at the expanse, the breadth of firearm ownership and identity, especially among those who are female identifying here in Ohio and also in New Jersey, two states with really different gun legislation and policies. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're going through a similar transition in thinking as we went through with addiction and mental health generally, where we had to destigmatize things. We had to, you know, wipe away some of the stereotypes to be able to see it clearly. We learned that more affluent people were, you know, dealing with addiction than was previously talked about publicly. And also the racialization of things was different than the stereotypes indicated. So it sounds like you have to do similar kind of um, you know, chimney cleaning or whatever the metaphor is of to actually look at this clearly with a fresh set of eyes. I love that comparison, Dan, because when we think about substance use and addiction, things, these, these topics, these, these experiences that were highly stigmatized within our culture, certainly before my time, for example, drunk driving, right? And not being able to drink while you're driving and how that was a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. I think about as we, the conversation is moving in the firearms research community, both from a public health and from a psychiatry and, and psychology perspective, that 
it, it's not necessarily we need to take a political stance of, of taking away or limiting access and someone's constitutional right to own, keep and bear arms. It's more so, can we take, as we take away the keys for somebody who's been drinking before they get in the car, can we limit their access? Can we take away the ammo? Can we give them a, a gun lock, a trigger lock, if there's a, an opportunity to experience for them to experience a suicide crisis. It seems like any kind of moment or opportunity for reflection pays dividends, right? So anything you can do to slow it down and get somebody to have a conversation with somebody else, you know, we talk about these crisis hotlines and, and, and these kinds of resources that are there. It's just about getting that reflection in and being able to get people into some treatment before that that horrible, fast moment that they can never take back. And what we're finding in terms of that, that ideation to action is that it can move really quickly, which is not to confuse it with something that's impulsive, right? Some, sometimes there's the fear in thinking, well, somebody impulsively died by suicide or attempted suicide. As I, as you and I were talking about earlier, right? Anybody can be at risk for suicide. We want to be sure to share that. Given a certain set of circumstances and factors, anybody can be at risk. When somebody gets into that that space of a suicide crisis, where the the desire to die and the planning kind of comes to fruition, it might not take long for them to consider their access to that that plan and that method. We underestimate the power of somebody resolving that crisis if they limit their access to lethal means. So since this is a podcast focused on Ohio, I, I do want to take a minute to ask you if there's anything, and you know, you're, you're working as a clinician in Ohio, you're a researcher, you also live here, so there's lived experience. What do you think you know, whether it's from data or experience or any of that, what do you think is unique about our state when it comes to our approach toward this issue? And I mean, we could think about what tools we have. We can think about policy. We can think about just culture. I mean, is there anything that you've observed here? And also share with the listeners, we're both transplanted Northeasterners, right? So there's, there's a kind of interesting lens there as well. But I wonder if you have any insight into that. What I've observed in terms of the uniqueness about Ohio makes me really hopeful when we think about suicide prevention. So the the state's strategic plan, which was led by the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation, actually addresses increased or uh, unique considerations around firearm suicide prevention or conversations about suicide and firearms. Personally, I've, I've become involved with a number of initiatives in the state namely LifeSide Ohio, which is a collaboration between stakeholders in the gun community, people who own and use guns frequently, whether they're retailers, they're shop owners, um, you know, they, they primarily use their guns for hunting, and then those that represent mental health and suicide prevention. One of the things that I think is really important we don't necessarily have opportunities to share the lived experience of the people that we work with or we serve. But as someone who is a clinician who does work in suicide prevention and is also a gun owner, I think having that that experience has really served me to understand the conversations that we have and that both sides need to be present. It sounds like, I mean, there's also a collaboration there. And as I'm looking around the state, I mean, I look at the, the governor's state of the state address 
And then you look at some of the conversations across the aisle around guns. I mean, I think that people are now well aware of the culture of guns that's in the state, where the spaces for collaboration may be, the places we can't go because politically they're just too hot to touch, right? So, you know, and, and me as a, you know, um, bleeding heart liberal, right? You have to come into these conversations with your, your colleagues, with your friends, with your neighbors who are ideologically different from you and, and try to find that space. And it seems like we're, we're more well aware of what's possible in Ohio right now, which will hopefully um, help us to actually move the needle a bit. When we think about who's a gun owner, right, or when we think specifically about gun culture, there are certain images that can come to mind. And in fact, gun owners are varied. The, the, the breadth of representation by, of those who own and use guns in the state of Ohio is much more than I think we, we kind of readily imagine, which is important, right, to, to challenge our preconceptions, especially in working together. Last question I have, you know, and really this is an open-ended question. I, I came to meet you through this piece you published in the Ohio Journal of Public Health, and I, I just love that I get to meet new people and through this work with this podcast. That's cool. But, you know, now, now you're doing this clinical work, and and um, I guess I just want to understand a little bit about the kind of work you're doing now and how you bring together the various pieces of your life. You have a bunch of different degrees in different areas. You have, you know, research interests, and now you have this clinical work. How does it all hang together, and what, what are you most excited about doing in this position that you're now in? My mom likes to joke that I need to get an extra little piece of paper for my business card because of the alphabet soup after my name. Um, I find what, what I'm excited about in this new position as a, a clinical faculty member at, at Ohio State is the opportunity to continue a lot of what I've been doing, which is research and clinical work, but also with the intention of continuing to evaluate suicide-specific interventions that we know are effective. I've had the opportunity over the past few years being with the, the Suicide and Trauma Reduction Initiative, or STRIVE, lab at Ohio State to use treatments that we know work with people who really need them. Most of it's been in the context of our clinical trials, right? We're doing research to ensure what, what works is actually working and does it work in different contexts. I am hopeful in terms of the next steps that we can increase access to good quality treatment to, to more folks, to more Ohioans within our community, but also across the state. Yeah, I mean, across the state being really an important piece. The rural, urban, suburban sort of disparities are huge in our state. And the workforce capacity, if you're in certain parts of the state, is very low. So we're not only, you know, trying to um, figure out how to do this kind of treatment, but we actually need to figure out how to get people to the places where they can do this work and serve all these different communities. I had no idea moving here that Ohio had so many different kind of regions and sort of elements to it. It was just Ohio to me, you know, and, and I, I'm guessing that that has to be part of your work moving forward if serving the state is your goal as opposed to, let's say, Franklin County. 
And another thing that I'll mention, Dan, is we've been really fortunate um, to to be recipients of a, of a grant at the state level to increase access to treatment for both depression and for suicide um, for folks with Medicaid. And so that's going to be coming to fruition within the next few months, which means hopefully, knock on wood, we're able to increase access to folks, again, who historically might not have access to good quality clinical care. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Again, we encourage you to check out the Ohio Journal of Public Health, and you can follow the links that we've provided on our show notes at prognosisohio.com. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss our next episode with the good people from COTS, formerly known as the Central Ohio Trauma System, who talk with us about emergency preparedness in Ohio. It's a really interesting episode that you're going to learn a lot from. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests as well as topics or ways we can improve the show. We really love hearing from you and we take this feedback seriously. Thanks for listening.